So who do you look up to? Who is someone you follow as an example? Story of a husband who was sitting there with his wife one afternoon and he was flipping through a catalog. It was a a seed catalog. And he came across the tomato section. And he looked at these beautiful pictures of the end product, what was supposed to happen. And he realized what an awful gardener he was, like nothing ever grew the way it was supposed to grow. And suddenly he jumped up from his chair and he started going out in the backyard. And his wife said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to show my tomato plants these pictures. They need to know what they're supposed to look like. There's there's nothing like the power of an example. There's nothing like the power of being able to see what things should be like. Something to, to follow after. So who is the example in your life? Who are you following after in life? Who do you want your kids to follow after? Who do you want your, your grandkids to follow after? When things get tough in life, when life gets really, really hard, what, what example are you following after? Who do you want to be following? Our message today is the best name. We're going to be looking in the Bible at the book of James. And, and the scene here is the early church, the, the first Christians, so to speak, and things were tough. They were being mistreated. They were being physically persecuted. Things were hard. Things were difficult. The culture around them was evil. The society around them made living out their faith very, very hard. Hear anything that sounds kind of familiar? And so in the midst of all of that, those people in this tough time, when when things were difficult, they they needed an example to follow. They need someone to follow after. They needed something that they could see. They needed a, a shining example of why their faith was not a waste of time. Something to help. And James is going to do that. James is the natural-born younger brother of Jesus. Jesus was supernaturally born, but but James was the the natural-born younger brother of Jesus. And he's writing to some of these first Christians, trying to give them something to look up to, trying to give them an example to follow after. And who are the examples that he gives? Who, Who are these that we're supposed to follow after when times are tough? Well, let's find out. Listen to James chapter 5, beginning with verse 10. As an example, brothers and sisters, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. James says, you know what, if you're looking for an example to follow after, if if you're looking for someone to look up to, make the prophets your examples. Look up to the prophets. Make them your heroes. Follow after their example. Now, at first glance, that sounds okay, right? I mean, find some cool people from the Old Testament and and follow their example. Find some of these cool prophets from the Old Testament and follow their example. But then if you think about it, were the prophets really cool? I mean, is that kind of what they were known for? Let's just take one, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet of God. He was consistently called a liar. He was ignored He was mocked, he was beaten, he was persecuted. 
He was chased after in, in an attempt to actually kill him. He was actually stuck in a huge well of mud and water and left to die. All that sounds cool, 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 right? <laughs> Those are the people we need to look up to. And yet, this is where James directs our attention. Think about the prophets. Now, nobody put up a statue for Jeremiah. Nobody wore Jeremiah's jersey. Nobody followed him on social media. Nobody bought the Jeremiah study Bible. No, this was, this was someone that no one really wanted to have anything to do with because so many parts of his life were full of failure. And yet James says, follow after that guy. Let him be somebody you look up to. Let him be an example. And why would he say that? If there's nothing of success in his practical life, if there's nothing of success in his professional ministry, why in the world would James say, yeah, look up to him? Listen again to verse 10. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. If you profess to be a Christian, that right there is the mission of your life. It is the purpose of your life to do all, speak all, think all, love all, summer all, whatever you do with your life, do all in the name of the Lord. Do everything in a way that brings honor and glory and fame to the name of the Lord. Now, let me just say, we're sinful and we're selfish, so we'll never do this perfectly. But it is the call, it is the mission of our lives as professed followers of Jesus Christ to do all in the name of the Lord. Jeremiah and the prophets, what they did, they did everything in the name of the Lord. In fact, the reason they were mistreated, the reason they were persecuted, the reason they were left for dead down in a muddy water well is because they were doing everything in the name of the Lord. They were doing everything in a way that brings attention to the glory and the fame and the sovereignty and the love and the mercy and the compassion of the one true God. Now, for now, creative preaching and uh, entertaining and enjoyable music, uh, comfortable buildings, those, those are all still selling for now. We, we can still use those types of things to, to help people find God. But the reality is if what we are selling is only that the gospel is somewhere you can come and hear exciting preaching or have enjoyable music or sit in a comfortable building and, and have nice coffee, then we are actually lying. Because that's not always the truth of the gospel. In fact, every word that we see from Jesus reminds us of the fact that the gospel is not always comfortable. Following Jesus is not always comfortable. As a matter of fact, the cross of Jesus Christ is the clearest reminder that the gospel is not always comfortable. It's not always creative. It's not always enjoyable. Sometimes following after Jesus is hard. Sometimes following after Jesus is, is difficult. So to do all in the name of the Lord does not automatically mean there will be health and wealth and prosperity. And any preacher and any ministry that tells you different is a lie. <laughs> just, just a lie. It's not always health, it's not always wealth, it's not always prosperity, and so, so what do we do? What do we do if those are not the things that come? Will we keep following Jesus? Will we still follow after Jesus? You know why James is telling us to follow after people like Jeremiah? It's because of things like this. So about 609 years 
uh, before Jesus was born, this is what Jeremiah wrote down. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. But if I say I will not remember him, I won't remember God. If I say I will not remember him nor speak any more in his name, and look, if you're left for dead down in a well, you, you might want to quit talking about God, okay? I will not remember him nor speak anyone in his name. If I did that, then in my heart, it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am tired of holding it in and I cannot endure it. The name of the Lord was like a consuming fire in Jeremiah's bones. And no matter how many times he was mocked or ignored or accused of being a liar or left for dead down in a muddy water well, he could not keep the name of God inside. There was something too incredible. The sovereignty and compassion and mercy and love of God were too much for him to keep inside. He could not keep it inside. Someone may be thinking, yeah, but I'm, I'm not some Old Testament prophet from 609 years before Jesus was born. So, so what does all this have to do with me? How, how do I connect with this? Well, part of what it means to be a Christian right now is that there should be a burning desire inside of you. Something should be burning inside of you. Not, not the chili dog you had last night or the burritos you had yesterday, okay? There's something that's supposed to be burning inside the heart and mind and soul of a Christian in 2023. And, and what is that? This is how Jesus said it. John 14, verse 3. I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. The return of Jesus Christ should always be burning in the heart and mind and soul of a Christian. This reality that our Redeemer is returning should always be burning in our heart. It should be part of who we are. So is the return of Christ a burning desire in your life or is the fire of that desire put out by the comforts of the world? It's not hard. It's real easy. It happens to all of us. That the, the comforts of this world and, and our desires for the things of this world, they just kind of keep pulling us away from the reality of the culmination of everything. The culmination of everything is heading toward the person of Jesus Christ. It's, it's not just heading toward graduation. It's not just heading toward marriage. It's not just heading toward having children. It's not just heading toward the next election or, or retirement or even death. The culmination of everything in the universe is heading toward Jesus Christ. And over and over and over again, God has proven himself to be trustworthy with what he says things are coming to. So everything is moving toward Jesus. So the return of Jesus should be a huge burning desire in the life of a believer. So is it a burning desire in your life, dear Christian? You know who has no problem thinking deeply about the return of Christ? Christians who are being persecuted. And we talk about it, but, but we're not being persecuted, okay? We, we may be on the verge of losing some religious freedoms, but we're not being persecuted. But the reality is there are Christians right now in the world who are physically being beaten and killed for their faith 
in Jesus Christ. Those folks, they have a burning desire for the return of Christ. They are all about Jesus returning. You know who else I've found in life has a, has a desire for the return of Christ? It's folks who are growing older in their faith. And sometimes people who are, are sick, those believers who have illness. Five weeks ago, I sat in the hospital with my dad. And I remember the night I walked in and, and dad just said, he goes, you know what? He said, I, I, think, that, uh, I think this is my time. I mean, I think the Lord is, is calling me home. And I remember being in that conversation with him and just, you know, wondering to myself, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know how to think or feel about that in this moment. But as we talked, it was evident. He was, he was very serious. He says, this, this is the Lord's time to call me home, and, and I'm okay with it. And we cried, but then, then there was calm. There was resolve. Because in my dad's heart, there was no more burning desire for pain. There was no more burning desire for, for suffering or, or causing the rest of us to suffer because of what he was enduring. His burning desire was to be with the one he knew and the one who knew him. And that changed things. Someone said, your spiritual condition is strategically connected to your desire for the return of Christ. So, where's your spiritual condition today? Is there a desire for the return of Jesus Christ? Or is there a steady neglect of the return of Jesus and even a steady neglect of the things of God? Although all the culmination of everything is heading toward Jesus, are we finding ourselves obsessed with everything else and not even giving him much attention? The reason James says, hey, take the prophets. Take the prophets and, and look at what they were doing in the name of the Lord is because of this. They had a burning desire for the glory of God. They had a burning desire for the first coming of Christ, knowing that the second coming was going to be as well. And what did they receive for being on fire for the Lord? What, what did they receive for having this burning desire to follow after God and to speak his name? Listen to verse 11. We count those, those prophets, we count those blessed who endured, blessed and happy and filled with joy. That's, that's what they received. They, they were in the spiritual hall of fame. The letter to the Hebrews would, would say maybe the spiritual hall of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's a description of those who were in this hall of faith. And it goes like this, beginning in verse 33. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. That's something for your resume, right? They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness they were made strong. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Strength, victory, shutting the mouths of lions. Yes, please, sign me up. That's who I want to follow after. Let, let those folks be my example. And wait, there's more. Continuing on, verse 35. And others experienced mocking and flogging and further chains and imprisonment. 
They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They were destitute, afflicted, tormented, wandering in deserts on mountains and sheltering in caves and holes in the ground. So some shut the mouths of lions. Yes, I want to follow them. And then some hid in fear in caves. Now, now if we're honest, when we hear the second part of that list, we're like, "Uh uh-uh, no, don't sign me up for that. No, I, I don't want to follow after people like that. Imprisonment, chains, mocking, destitute. No, no. I don't want my kids following after anybody like that either. I don't want my grandkids following after anybody like that either. If we're honest, that's, that's what we think when we hear a list like that. And wait, there's more. Hebrews eleven thirty nine. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised (laughs) that's a kicker right so so they didn't get the nice house they didn't didn't get the nice job and and the nice family and the the nice retirement and the nice vacation they didn't get all the things the peachy keen american dream didn't happen to them and james says follow them let those people be your example that's that's crazy Why in the world is he saying that? Why in the world would he point us toward people that their lives seem like failures? They they didn't get what was promised. Why would he say, yeah, follow after them? Here's why. Hebrews 11, 40. They didn't get what was promised because God had provided something better. Better. They didn't get what was promised. They got something better. What could possibly be better? What could be better than a, than a nice house and a nice family and a nice job and a nice life? What could possibly be better? Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says this, There is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation at all. No damnation at all. No annihilation at all. No separation at all. That is better. (laughs) That is much, much, much better. Paul told the church at Galatia, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me the sacrificial atoning propitiating substitutionary love and death of Jesus Christ that is better he makes things right between us and God that is better Jesus said this John 17 verse 3 and this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal, everlasting life. Eternal, everlasting joy. Eternal, everlasting satisfaction. That is better. You know what my dad told me in the hospital room that night? This isn't better. 
He even made this statement. He said, even if my body gets better, things won't be better. Like, like he, he gets it. He understood. And he knew that better is never here. Better is always with Jesus. Better is, is always with Jesus. But here's the deal. In the storm, we don't always feel better, right? I mean, we, we don't always feel this definition of better. When we're in the middle of the hardest things in life, we can't always see better. And that's exactly why James is writing to us. It's exactly why he's pointing us to the prophets. He's trying to get us to say, look, I know everything seems really dark now. I know it seems really hard now. I know life feels impossible. It feels impossible in your marriage. It feels impossible with your kids. It feels impossible with your finances and your job and, and school and your health. There's so many moments in life that feel impossible. And look, just to be clear, I am not just a seminary trained pretty boy up here preaching God's word to you. My life has felt impossible this week. Impossible in all of those categories that I just mentioned. And yet, in the middle of the impossible, in the middle of the dark, there is this better, and the better is always connected to Jesus. Always. Years ago, Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song reflecting on the the sudden death of his five-year-old little girl, Maria. And, and the song, the lyrics go like this. It's back to our tomato plant in some ways. We planted the seed while the tears of our grief soaked the ground. The sky lost its sun and the world lost its green to lifeless brown. Now the chilling wind has turned the earth hard as stone. And silently, seed rises beneath ice and snow. And my heart's heavy now, but I'm not letting go of this hope I have that tells me spring is coming. Spring is coming. And all we've been hoping and longing for soon will appear. Their little girl was not going to reappear. But what they long for the most, to be reunited with her, with Jesus, that was coming. Spring is coming. Spring is coming. It won't be long now. It's just about here. The spring of eternal life with Jesus is, is always just about here. Whether you've got another 50 years or 100 years or five years or five minutes to be in Christ means that better is always just around the corner. And the truth is, best is always just around the corner. Better is never ultimately here because better always has to be with Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate spring and spring is coming. He is coming again. James gives another example for us to follow in verse 11. You have heard of the endurance of Job. In case you don't know the story of Job or the endurance of Job, here's a, a quick snapshot. Uh, we don't know for sure, but we believe Job lived about 2,000 years before Jesus was born. 
He was very, very, very wealthy, had many worldly possessions, uh, was married, had 10 children. And then in a moment, in the blink of an eye, he lost all of his worldly possessions and his finances. And, And then in that same blink, he lost all 10 of his children in a devastating storm. And then in that same blink, his body was overcome with unimaginable sickness and pain. Everything that you could possibly imagine going wrong in life, it all happened to Job. Everything in Job's life felt dark and impossible. So how did he respond? He kept doing everything in the name of the Lord. (laughs) He, he, He just, he kept trusting in the name of the Lord. He kept speaking in the name of the Lord. Job wasn't perfect, okay? He, he struggled with what God was allowing. He, he was hurt. He was, he was overwhelmed. He was overcome. He had some moments of doubt and questioning, but he pushed through the doubt. He pushed through the questioning, and he kept trusting the Lord. And what did his trust lead to? Listen to the next part of verse 11 the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. In other words, hey, you guys know about Job and we know the end of the story, right? We know the outcome, the the dealings. We know the rest of the story. We know what God was ultimately bringing together. And what was he bringing together? Well, everything was restored to Job. He had had more kids. He had more wealth and, and more possessions. Everything got restored. But what if it didn't? What if, what if he didn't have more kids? What, what if his family wasn't restored? What if, what if the money wasn't restored? What if the possessions weren't restored? What, what would happen then? This is what Job said, Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. <laughs> See, Job's heart was set. It was secure. Take the money I'm still going to hope in God. Take my family. That sounds evil for us to say out loud, right? Take my family. I will still hope in God. Take whatever you want. Lord, if you take my life, I will still hope in you. See, Job was not putting his greatest confidence in fame, fortune, family, friends, food, or all the other things that we, if we're not careful, get little too obsessed with. He put his ultimate trust, his ultimate confidence in God and God alone. And his ultimate trust and his ultimate confidence would never disappoint him. Never. You know what I'm aware of on this Father's Day? I've, I've disappointed my wife and my kids, you know? Because you know what? I don't, ever, I don't do everything right, you know? That's happened, you know, and they've disappointed me, and I've disappointed you, and you've disappointed me. We're disappointers, you know. That's that's kind of who we are, but not God. No, he he never disappoints. We we may feel disappointed because we think something didn't happen the way we wanted to, but God, it is not possible for Him to disappoint. His compassion, His mercy, His love, His sovereignty—they are all perfect. So it is impossible for Him to disappoint. Job knew that. And so he said, I'm going to put my hope in God no matter what because I'm fully aware I have no hope outside of God. 
And I love how James describes the end results of Job's story, the, the dealings of the Lord. Listen to verse 11. That the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Full of compassion, full of mercy, full of, full of meeting a need in a desperate moment, full of, of bringing grace in a grueling circumstance. This is who God is. He's full of compassion and full of mercy. Look, some of us are nice guys and, and nice gals, but none of us are full of compassion. None of us are, are full of mercy. Somehow, earlier when we were praying before the sermon, when every single one of us were praying for ourselves, somehow God heard every single one of our prayers. I mean, I'm a multitasker, but I mean, I can't pull that off, right? So somehow God heard all of our prayers in this room and, and those watching online, and not just ours. Somehow among the, the billions of Christians around the world today, God, God heard all of their prayers. I can't fathom that, but that's why we say he and only he is full of compassion and full of mercy. Jeremiah was thrown in a muddy well and left to die, and yet he wrote in the book of Lamentations that the mercies and compassions of God are brand new every morning. Can you imagine that? I mean, I don't know exactly what that means. The Bible says it's some kind of cistern that he was lowered into, but I'm just thinking, you know, I'm, I'm in a muddy well of water and they left me there to drown and die. I don't know. I'm not thinking, I bet God's mercies are gonna be new in the morning, you know? But he was, you know why? Because time and time and time again, he saw, yep, God's mercies are new every morning. His compassions are are new every morning. Doesn't mean our circumstances change, but it means our hope in God cannot disappoint us. It's the very nature of hope in God. Fathers, grandfathers, anyone, if you're looking for someone to look up to, if you're looking for, for an example to follow after, if you're looking for an example to point your kids and your grandkids in their direction, point them toward Jeremiah. You know why? Because Jeremiah kept doing everything in the name of the Lord. He kept doing everything in the name that is above all other names. Whoever your favorite candidate is, they will not be the last name when the universe comes together. It will only be the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah kept doing all for the name because he knew that name was full of mercy and compassion. Later in the story, this is what Job said about God. Job 42, verse 5. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. That's a thing. You may have grown up in church and, and your faith kind of feels like something that was just kind of part of your life but it can't be something you hear. It, it's gotta be something you see and you own. There has to be a burning desire for Jesus inside of you. Now that may look different for all of us, but, but there's gotta be something of that in there. 
that this is not my parents' faith. This is not my grandparents' faith. This is not the pastor's faith. This is not the church's faith. This is my faith. I have seen the living God. Whatever that definition means, I have seen the living God in the face of Jesus Christ. I have found salvation in Jesus. You see, Job is, is not just a story about, you know, building character. I think sometimes when we hear Bible studies or hear sermons on Job, it's like, oh, uh, you know, Job, he had a heart of faith and it built his character. You know, it wasn't building character, although, yeah, it did. Job's story is about a man who knew God. Like he knew God. Like there, there wasn't any confusion. I know him. He knows me. It was a story about a man who had everything go wrong in life. The darkest of the dark, the most impossible of the most impossible. It all happened to Job. And in the middle of all of that, what he felt the most was the hand of God holding him. See, Job discovered that it was the name of the Lord that was above all other names. So fathers, grandfathers, and, and anyone, if you're looking for someone to look up to, someone to, to follow as an example, someone to point your kids or your grandkids toward, point them toward Job. Because Job never stopped doing all to the name of the Lord. He, he never stopped putting everything he had into the best name, the only name that's above all other names and the only name that's full full, brimming, spilling over with compassion and mercy. This week I was in a, a government office and I was um, working on some, some paperwork connected to my father's death. And as part of the paperwork, she asked to see my ID. So I handed her my driver's license and she looked at my license and then she looked at the paperwork and then she looked back at the license and she kind of looked at me a little odd and then she looked back again and she looked again and she goes, oh, you have the same name as your father. And I was like, yeah, I do, you know, and I do. I'm, I'm Josie Dow Welsh Jr. And I'm super proud to carry that name and to try to follow after the example of my dad. But here's what I love most about the example of my dad. Because Josie Dow Welsh Sr. created an environment for me so that I would understand his name was not the best name. He created an environment for me so that I would be able to find the name that is above all other names. What I'm most thankful for in the example of my dad is that he made sure that I grew up in an environment where I could find Jesus. Because in Jesus, there is no condemnation at all. And in Jesus, there is no damnation at all. And in Jesus, there is no annihilation at all. And in Jesus, there is no separation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's why we say that the name of Jesus is the best name.
There is no other name under heaven by which men and women and boys and girls can be saved and satisfied other than the name of Jesus. We follow after him. We look to him. He is our ultimate example because his name is the best name. 